Welcome to the Fair Forest Podcast. Here you can find sermon, Bible study, and devotional audio from Fair Forest Church of God in Spartanburg, South Carolina, a place of hope, healing, and restoration. It is our prayer that this content introduces you to Jesus and deepens your relationship with him. I'm going to start in a place that I would typically end this sermon, because I want to try to incite some hunger in you, because by the end of what I'm going to say this morning, there's, there's going to be a, there's going to be a pretty taxing and confrontational reality to what it looks like to walk in freedom. So I want to give you dessert first, hoping and praying that you'll eat your vegetables later, that I will too. In this text, Gilgal shows up in a curious place in the life cycle of Israel. It's an interesting place for Israel to get to the place that would be named Gilgal. So because this is after the plagues and after the Passover, it's after leaving Egypt, it's after the armies of Pharaoh have come, it's after the Red Sea has both been parted and then covered back over the enemies of Israel. It's after they've been to the mountain. It's after they've experienced the power of the presence of God on top of that mountain. It's after he's given them the law and organized them as a people. It's after the wilderness. It's after four decades of wandering. It's after supernatural provisions in manna. And honestly, if you read through the story of the Torah, water just seems to come out all kind of different places. I don't think they could find a single bit of clean water without God making it spring out of somewhere it shouldn't have come from or flow down from somewhere they wouldn't have expected. But now... You've got, and I'll talk a little bit more at length about the generational differences here, but I want you to see, now Israel has even crossed the one most defining body of water in their young existence, the Jordan River. They had battered up against it time and time again in their wanderings. They knew it was there. They had shied away in fear of going over into Canaan. And so for 40 years, that body of water loomed on the horizon of their life. But now they crossed it. Miraculously, as the priests took the Ark of the Covenant and set their feet at the water's edge, and then the water stood up miles upstream, and the children of Israel walked across on dry ground. But it's between Jordan and Jericho that Gilgal takes place. And I want you to hear me what I'm saying here. It is after the victory of God over the enemies of his people that we find out that Israel was not ready to enter the promised land fully. And I want you to hear me. Some of y'all who haven't crossed Jordan I'm talking about the TV show. I've never seen Crossing Jordan. I don't want to see it. I'm talking about surrendering your life to Jesus even this very morning for the first time or for the first time in a long time. And I tell you, his grace is sufficient. You ask him to be your Lord and Savior. 
You surrender what you were and ask him to make you what you're supposed to be. He will save your soul eternally and he will save your life right now. But there's a lot of people in this room who've already crossed over Jordan but who are still carrying things from their past. That's what Gilgal was about. See, Gilgal's not about the initial movement into salvation. Gilgal is about what happens when you drag all your baggage and barnacles into God's promise, and he says, hold on, you're not ready. Something's got to happen. Some of us have been frustrated for a long time because we got saved and things didn't change. We were forgiven, but everything seems to feel the same. We can't seem to get over those things that are still weighing us down. And can I tell you something? The enemy will try and convince you you're not saved. The enemy will try to convince you that the cross isn't enough. The enemy will try to tell you that the blood of Jesus wasn't what he claimed it was in the scriptures. I rebuke that in Jesus' name, and I bind that foolish lie that comes straight out of hell. His blood is enough. His cross is enough. His salvation is enough. I will declare it till the day that I die. And whether you feel it or not means very little because you are changed when you are saved. And you might still be a jerk. But if you've been to Calvary, positionally you are not the same. And I think we hit that wall where we think, man, did it really happen? Did it not happen? Because I feel like I'm just dragging all of this stuff around. What is wrong with my life? And, and I'm just telling you, God will bring us to moments, multiple moments, I believe, in our life where we come to Gilgal. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about Gilgal. <laughs> the English expression here is rolled away. And, and I love that expression. There's three things I want to tell you about Gilgal, and, and this is where I would have ended the sermon if, if I was, I guess, linear, but I'm not. I think differently. So... If you look in Matthew chapter 27, there is a text in verses 64 through 66 where after Jesus has been crucified and Joseph brings him down off the cross and Joseph takes him over to this tomb that he owns, Joseph rolls this rock over the tomb. Now they did that for decorum's sake because dead bodies decompose and they tend to create an odor. And so they were going to uh, put spices on him and, and they were going to refresh the spices uh, in, a, in a few days. That's what happens in, in a second in Mark chapter 16 that I'll read. But a rock has been rolled over the mouth of that tomb or the mouth of that cave or, or, or grave area. And, and so the Pharisees come to Pilate. The professionals of the temple come to the prefect of the empire, and they say, we've got to do something because his disciples are going to try to steal the body because they're gonna to try to perpetuate this myth that he's not really dead, that he's come back from the grave because that's what he claimed he would do. We've got to do something about it. And so Pilate says, that's fine, we'll do something about it. We'll put a seal on it. We'll make sure that it is sealed at the mouth where the stone meets the rock. We'll put a seal there so that if that's broken, it will be a capital crime. And also, I'll send some soldiers. We'll put a detachment of soldiers in front of that tomb so that it cannot be grave robbed so that we can make sure that everything is going to be okay. But, but then in Mark chapter 16, so let me, let me tell you, the rock that Joseph Arimathea put in front of that tomb in order to keep it uh, um, you know, like it should be, it became a tool. It became a tool of the empire's pride and dead religion's fear. Hmm. See, the empire is proud and arrogant, and it believes that it is more 
It is stronger than anything else in the world. The empires of this world believe that with the signing of a pen or the push of a button, they can do anything that they want to do. But on the other side, we had dead religion that was afraid that something other than what they thought was supposed to take place was actually going to take place. And so you see this uniting of two sides that you would rarely ever see united. All because of one guy who they watched die. And so in Mark chapter 16, verse 3, the women come to the tomb that morning. The mist rises. The air is cool. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now look at the language. But looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled. Mark includes in his gospel this, these four words. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He says, you can see where they laid him because the stone has been rolled away. What your enemies had tried to seal up and put guards in front of, it has been rolled away. See, Gilgal is not just a place in Joshua. Gilgal is a place in the garden. Gilgal is the place where religion and the empire said, we can stop God from doing what God wants to do. And God said, no, you can't. I'll do whatever I want to do. I don't care how large the rock is. I can roll away what you tried to use to seal up your death. I can roll away what the enemy tried to use to create fear inside of you. I can roll away every taunt and accusation of your past. I can roll them all away. I've done it before. I've done it again, and I'll do it in your life as well. But wait, there's more. See, Gilgal wasn't even the name of the place where they got to in Joshua chapter 5 before they got there. <laughs> They came to a tract of land. Don't know if it had a name or not. We just know that we weren't given the name once they got there. Somewhere between Jordan and Jericho, somewhere between the crossing over and their first battle, they got to this place, and God said, hold up, something's got to take place here. And so what happens at Gilgal literally stamps the geography of the land with a name that means this has been rolled away. See, <laughs> When God does something in your life, can I tell you something? Don't you dare ignore, well, well man, we mealy mouth our way through some victories sometimes as Christians. I'm sick and tired of mealy mouth. Can I tell you, there are enough defeats and attacks on my life that every time God comes through, I want to stamp and brand the very ground where I saw him, where I encountered him, and say, this place is forgiveness. This place is deliverance. This place is joy. This place is peace. I'm tired of us walking. Yeah, God moved. I thought he moved last Sunday. did something. I don't know what he did in my life. I don't know. I just I cried a little bit. I was at the altar for a little while. No, no, throw that mess away. God did something special you mark the ground where you stood and you look at your enemies and say this is where he rolled that away this is my Gilgal now this is the place where the stone no longer sits in the pathway of life and resurrection some of y'all need to name some prayer closets because some of y'all prayed and sweated and wept over some things in your life and when God came through, you just walked out of there. 
I'm glad that's behind me. No! Take a Sharpie. Frustrate your spouse. Write it on the walls. Here is mercy. Here is grace. Here is victory. Write it so everybody who walks in your house sees where God moved. They didn't care if they named it Gilgal. They weren't afraid to call it that. They weren't afraid. People are going to think we didn't have the victory. You didn't. Why are we worried about telling the truth? Gilgal was not the name of that place until God moved in that place. But then forevermore, it would be known as Gilgal because the victories of God don't have expiration dates. Third and finally, and then I'll move into the rest of the sermon. This is the introduction. It's supposed to be the conclusion. Y'all in for it today. There's a unique thing, though, about the word Gilgal, which is a Hebrew word that comes from the word galal. In the Hebrew, the word galal means a round thing. And so Gilgal is a word that sounds kind of like the word galal. Now, that's used multiple times in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language. I could give you the references, but I won't. But it really means, the word galal really speaks of anything that is round. And so the root of this word actually makes it into three of the four Gospels in its Aramaic form. Because it, it, it speaks of the thing that sits on top of your shoulders, your head, because your head is round. Some of us have rounder heads than others. But the word for round, when it is applied to your skull, is the Aramaic word Golgotha. See, this same word finds its way through the threads of the scriptures. In the place of rolling away, the place where the rolling away took place, we see a hill. We see a hill in the distance that Joshua couldn't see. We see a hill in the distance that Israel didn't know was coming exactly. We see a hill in the distance where the unthinkable took place. We see a hill in the distance that when you look at that picture of that hill, the way the rock is carved out, it looks like a skull. And so it's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And that is where Jesus Christ hung between heaven and earth. That is where the power was released that could set us free from the things that were standing between us and the liberty that God purchased for us. It was on Calvary. It was at Golgotha. It was on the cross of Christ that we find the victory, the power for the victory that he has provided for us in this season of the cross. I didn't want to move past this without telling you that you need a Gilgal in your life. I need a Golgotha in my life. There are multiple times in my life that I need to walk back up to the edge of that hill and say, God, I know you saved me once upon a time, but I need your power because there's things that have come against me. God, I know you redeemed me and I'm going to heaven when I die, but I need you in my life right now because there are things that are bigger than I am that are weighing on my shoulders and I need to come back to a place where you took the weight of the world on your shoulders and said, I will carry it for you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you can come carry carry my stuff for a while because I've already taken yours on my shoulder. Oh, some of y'all act like you never fought anything. Stop that. Some of y'all walked, oh, God help us. Some of y'all walked in this room fighting stuff. Some of you stepped into this house wondering why you showed up, didn't want to get up this morning. You slapped a smile on your face and God be praised he brought you here on purpose. Some of y'all are struggling right now. You feel like every weight 
in this whole world is collapsing around you, is compressing your heart, is making you stressed out, it's taxing your mind, it's robbing you of your joy, it's trying to steal you of your future. You don't know why you're saved in the first place because this is, if this is what it feels like, then you don't want any part of it. Can I tell you something? There is still a Gilgal that God can bring into your life to roll away that mess, all that trash, all of that filth, all of that disgusting nonsense the enemy's tried to tell you. You are gonna sit here and stare at me, but I'm here to tell you God is working in your life even right now and he can set you free this morning. I specifically prayed last night, late into the night, before I went to bed. I said, God, people need to be set free, and I'm asking you to do that this morning. I believe you heard my prayer, and I don't believe I'm the only one that prayed that prayer last night. I believe that there is a spirit of freedom in this house. There's a spirit of rolling away in this house, and if you want it, it's going to be here for you to take hold of, and then we're going to get into the text. <laughs> Give me a hand clap of praise this morning. Mm. You look at 5.9. We find out something very interesting in the text. It says, and the, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What's interesting about that text is that God is talking about something that we didn't know was present before this verse. He's talking about a nagging in their past. There's a nagging inside of them. If you wear a smartwatch, a few of you, some of you are embarrassed to raise your hands. It's all right. God sees you. It's not an altar call, y'all. <laughs> Why y'all backing off like you're afraid? I'm not going to throw a Bible at you or something. I'm, I got one on. <laughs> I do it so it can remind me how little I sleep every night. It's a great encouragement every morning. You were awake eight times last night. Your sleep quality was poor. Like, thanks a lot. Glad I spent the money. <laughs> but it'll nag you sometimes, won't it? Your phone will nag you. My watch nags me. It, when I, I used to have an Apple watch, and, and it would tell me, it's like, hey, take a minute to breathe. Like, if I wasn't breathing, I wouldn't be looking at you. Like, what are you talking about? It'd tell me at 9.30 at night sometimes. Hey, you're just a brisk 30-minute walk away from meeting your steps goal. Well, you should have told me at 7 so I'd have felt guilty about not going out there to walk. Because at 9.30, I'm packed in. Unless the world's falling apart or North Korea attacked me, I am packed in by 9.30, all right? So you can take your notification, you can throw it out the window. I ain't doing it. Steps goal. I didn't even set that goal. Watch set it for me. I've read about a happy fork. It's a device embedded inside of an ordinary-looking fork that measures how fast you eat while it prods you to slow down and chew slower. It's a company called Automatic that offered a device that would chirp when a driver speeds, slams on the brakes, or does anything else behind the wheel that the DMV would not be happy with. Some of y'all's car would sound like a circus. For $50, you can buy a toothbrush that wirelessly tells a phone app how often and how long you brush your teeth. The phone app then sends the user rewards and punishment based on their brushing behavior. It's a webcam called Posture Track that will catch you slouching. And then there's a website called Beminder 
that will tally fines for undesirable behaviors like not flossing or staying up too late. This is the world we created. Don't tell me it wasn't better 2,000 years ago. I don't care if they didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have robots telling them to brush the teeth better. There's a nagging. It's a spirit of nagging. Constantly reminding you of what you have not done or what you've done but didn't do well. There's a nagging. Speaking to us and telling us, hey, hey, do it better. Do it more. Do it less. Hey, you're not finished yet. Hey, keep going. There's a nagging. And what we see in Joshua 5, 9 is that despite all God had already done, Israel had a need to be free from something that was nagging them, that would not leave them alone. We find out in this text that the people weren't nearly as free as we would have thought. The word for reproach there in the Hebrew means the taunts of your enemy and the associative condition of shame. If I repeat myself throughout the sermon, it's okay. But I want you to get this picture. There wasn't a single Egyptian in sight. Do you see this? The taunts of their enemy and the associative condition of shame, the reproach of Egypt. But everybody who could threaten them from Egypt was drowned in the Red Sea. They had been walking for 40 years without a single Egyptian threatening them, and yet it's the reproach of Egypt that they haven't gotten away from. It's the nagging of slavery. See, this slavery was not about shackles and chains. It was about memories and identity. And you can be free in, in the way that all of your enemies have been defeated and still not be free because you haven't let go of what they were saying before. God brought them over the Jordan Every enemy that they had faced was finished, was done. Futures ahead of them, promise ahead of them. And now God says, it wasn't about me getting everybody away from you. It's about me getting out of you what's been inside of you. That's why I'm here to tell you that this isn't about you making your first trip to the cross. It's about 20 years after you've been to the cross the first time and realizing you've been walking with burdens and shame and difficulty and struggle and God looking at you and saying, I set you free from that too. I didn't call you to walk with heavy weights from your past. I've set you free from shame and accusation. I delivered you from those things. Why are you still walking with them? Why are you still carrying them? I can roll that mess away from your life. You don't have to be that. You don't have to live like that. You are not the sum of what your enemies have told you. You are the word that I've spoken over you, and that is the deliverance that we need in the church. Give him praise. They haven't come into the land of promises free people. They've crossed over Jordan with baggage. And I'll tell you this. They're finding out that the decision to enter into this promised land is not the same thing as being healed from the stigma and shame of where they'd come from. We'll say it one more time. They are, and I believe that we find out as well, 
They're finding out that the decision to enter into the promised land is not the same thing as being healed from the stigma and shame of where they live. Some of you walked out of some dark places in your past. Some of you walked out of some deeply sinful places. Rebellion, violence, addiction, wounds, struggles. Some of you, it wasn't what you did, it was what was done to you. It's not the wounds that you inflicted, it's the ones that were inflicted upon you. There's a difference between being saved and being free. I read this story about Willie Carson, who was a jockey. It's loud in this mic, I know, I'm sorry about that. But I yell a lot, and so I've got a drink. Willie Carson was racing at the British track at Pontefract. And about halfway through the race, he, thought he was leading, but he thought he heard a horse behind him. And so as he's riding this horse, he takes a glance back. He steals a backwards glance to see what was happening. And he saw the shadow of a horse coming up on him. And he said, I'm not losing this race. And so, man, he dug in on that thoroughbred. He gave that horse all it wanted, and it pushed and pushed and pushed. It crossed the finish line. Carson and his horse came in first place. And so as he raised up on the saddle, he turned to look to see how close the horse behind him had come to actually catching up to him. And he looked, and the second place horse was 15 full lengths behind him. Not anywhere close. Some of y'all never been to a horse track. I know that. I'm using terminology you're not familiar with. Thank you for being good holiness people. <laughs> But what Carson realized was that when he turned, what he'd actually seen was the shadow of his own horse. And so he'd spent the entire second half of that race trying to get away from his own shadow. <laughs> and I just want to ask you, have you left behind what's behind you? Or are you still trying to get away from yourself. Because that's what Israel's doing here. They're trying to get away from themselves. They're not trying to get away from an external enemy. I think so often, this is, oh God, help me here. No, this is the spirit. If it's not, some of y'all can come slap me later on. Sometimes we love our flags and we love our teams. I don't mean sports teams. I mean our church teams. Sometimes we love our denominational lines. Sometimes we love our national lines so much because we want, because we want an enemy on the outside because they're easier to fight than the ones that are on the inside. And we can so you've been angry at other nations because you think they're going to attack us. Or you've been angry at other churches because you think their theology is, 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 is bankrupt. Or you've been angry at other people because you believe they hurt you on all along. Those were never the enemies that were actually tormenting your life. They were the enemies in your mind and in your heart. And God is trying to tell you what's in here, what's in here. And everybody on the outside is going to be where they know what they do. And God says, if you can't allow me to heal what's inside, if you're never willing to make that step in the 
from a place where there's a hole in yourself on the inside and the level of your identity so you're going to spend your entire life fighting everybody who's in front of you when they're not really your enemies because I defeated your enemies already. We hate each other, we, hate each other. we fight each other, we can't stand each other. You want to know why so hard? You want to know why so hard? You want to know why so hard? You want to know why so because we like, it's because we like to call people in front of us enemy. So that we don't have to deal with the villains that are living inside us. Shame and reproach. Angst. Struggle. Hurt. Beauty of this text is not just in the revelation of the fact that they were shamed to shame. The beauty of this text is that God knew. And, and can I take you back to one more place? I love this. Because I just, I just want you to see this and all. I know long with it. So if you need to leave, take an intermission, go eat lunch, come back. That's all right. But I want you to see something here. <laughs> Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. That's the standing rule. If you need to take an intermission, you go right ahead. I'll still be preaching when you get back. In, in, verse, one, in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, As soon as the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, as soon as they heard that the had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts, their hearts melted, and they were, and they were, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. But now get the picture. Please see what's happening. They are terrified. The Amorites and the Canaanites are kings and their armies. They are not. Their hearts are melting in them. They are terrified of what is coming because of Israel. But look at Israel. Israel's crossed over Jordan and wounded and cut and deeply hurt. Ashamed of where they've been. They don't look like victors at all. Can I tell you something? Even in your place of brokenness, you haven't lost victory. Even in the place where you feel the deepest wounds, you haven't lost the victory God spoke over your life. Even when you feel as weak as you've ever felt, the enemies that would want to come against you are terrified of you. They might threaten you, they might speak to you, but they are carrying a thin shell of counterfeit courage because they've seen the faithfulness of God in your life. Hey, some, come on, some of y'all are broken enough that you need to be reminded. Just because you're weak doesn't mean that they're ready to strike. Even in your weakness, his strength has terrified those who would come against you. And, and I'm, not, I'm not here to browbeat you with this. I, I just want you to hear maybe. Just to remind you, first of all, that all authority in heaven and on earth has still been given to Jesus. Even when you don't feel like you're soaring through the stars, even when the wounds have cut you deeply, he still possesses all authority on heaven and earth. Your enemies are still subject to your Lord even while you're in the valleys of your life. I, I just I jotted a couple of these things down. I, I'm here to remind you still that when you can't seem to see it, 
And when it just seems like your enemies have surrounded you, but you can't really see from a zoomed out perspective, when you feel like you're in those valley places, can I, I love this, this is where Psalm 23 is so powerful. It's when you're in the depths of that valley. It's when you're in the pits of your life that Jesus comes walking up with a folding table and a picnic basket and says, hey, all y'all, you're not coming close to this one because this one's mine. I'm gonna put the table up. I'm gonna set up a couple chairs. I'm gonna serve the food. I'm gonna pour the drink. You're gonna eat a meal in the very valley of your brokenness. <laughs> you're gonna be nourished in the very valley of your brokenness because when your enemy surrounds you, he still brings the table out. He still anoints your head with oil. Your cup still runs over even in the valley places of your life. Let death surround you and let life come in the middle of that place and he will give you nourishment in the worst moments of your life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I'm just here to remind you that even though you don't feel like you're whole, that doesn't mean that you're not victorious. Even though you still feel like you're broken, it does not mean that God has not done the work on your behalf. I'm just here to remind you not to condemn you, and it might do you some good to remember as well. Kings and the armies are terrified even while Israel is broken. Hmm. This means that even in the process, God is working. I'll say one more thing, I've got one point at the end. Story to tell, and then we're gonna pray. We good? Lord knows how long it's gonna take. I believe, and I believe the Bible would speak to this as well, so it's not just my opinion. Sometimes we don't like to repent, and we don't like to walk back a bad decision because it feels like we've stopped making progress. And we're, can I just tell you, we're afraid of that. You think to yourself, God, I can't go loving my enemies. I just got to the place where I can actually love my friends. Oh, some of y'all didn't want to laugh at that because that hit a little too close to home. I said, God, I, I, can't, I can't give generously. I can't tithe. I just started paying my bills every month on time. God, I'm just now getting back to level. God, I can't have you calling me into any kind of deeper place of relationship. Can I just tell you? C.S. Lewis dealt with this, and I think he did it powerfully. He said that if you're walking down a road and you realize that you're walking in the wrong direction, then every step that you take backwards, even though it feels like you're retreating, is actually a step in the right direction because every step away from the place you're not supposed to be is a step toward the place you are supposed to be. And sometimes you have to untangle some things in your life in order to move forward. Sometimes we hit a wall in our Christian life and think, I can't, I don't have, there's no more victory to be had. I just gotta live with this mess. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. You don't have to just live with that mess. I believe that there's freedom, but I believe the hard work of freedom is you reversing a little bit from the path you were taking so that God can untangle some of the mess that was tightening up. You ever try to undo, I, oh, Christmas lights are awful, aren't they? And, and if you ever try to untangle Christmas lights, which demons live in the attic, that's all I can say. But if you ever try to untangle them by pulling them, then you might as well throw them away. You've got to work them. Because the further you go into the tangle, 
And the more pressure you put on the tangle, the harder it is to untangle. And so God says immediately, sometimes you've got to walk back from where you were going so that you can walk on the road that I've actually called you to. This is what Israel had to do. So let me tell you how you get Gilgal in your life. It's not, that, it's not hard to say. It's not that easy to apply, but it's not difficult to say. Freedom isn't just God's victory over our enemies. Listen closely. Freedom comes through our commitment to him. Hear that, hear that out loud. Freedom is not just God defeating our enemies. Freedom is when we choose to commit our lives to him fully. Look at verse five in chapter five. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us. A land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 7. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place. There's a word for a generation there, but I don't have time. It was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Look closely. That's probably more times than you've heard the word circumcised in the last 10 years of your life. Oh, some of y'all think it's going to get awkward. It's all right. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Because what I want to tell you is this. The physical act of circumcision is actually a spiritual act of consecration. So the physical act was always supposed to be a symbol a signpost of what was going on inside of the person, not on the outside of the person. When God established this covenant with Abraham, God did not do that just because Abraham needed to conduct a physical act. It was because Abraham needed to show God that he was going to walk in the covenant that God had made with him, and so part of that was circumcision. But it was really, and you read about this in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells the Jews, he says, you are a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts. He says, your flesh bears the signs of your commitment, but your heart is not present in that same commitment. See, hmm, This is why Israel can look like they're victorious. This is why they can split the Jordan River. This is why all the kings and armies can have their hearts melting within them. This is why you can come to church and look the part. It's why you can have come to an altar 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It's why you can live your life listening to Christian radio all the time, and yet still you think, man, there's something missing. I'm just not there. I don't have that victory. It's because the external is never the only issue. The internal has to be, has to be circumcised as well. There has to be a part of it. So let me tell you what circumcision is. It is, and, and Consecration, it is a boundaryless commitment to obedience. 
Listen close. Lord, give me wisdom here. <laughs> if I was here for about 10 years, I'd probably tell this story differently. The act of circumcision had to have come as a surprise to Abraham. You think? But how much more to all his employees who were keeping the flocks and herds? Because God said, all your people have to undergo this procedure as well. And so he walks out at quitting time and says, hey guys, I got, I got something to do. And they're like, sorry, what? Because this isn't like getting like a windfall inheritance from a rich uncle. It requires discomfort. And if you think that you're going to consecrate your life without any discomfort, then you are committing yourself to walking in the kind of slavery that your past will keep you in. See, God's gonna ask you if you're willing to, to obey him in some ways that hurt. Not because he wants you to hurt, but because he wants you to be free. Haven't you seen this? The prerequisite to Gilgal is the circumcision of a, of a generation. And that circumcision is God saying, are you willing to leave everything on the table and I have access to everything that you ever have so that if I tell you to do this, you absolutely will do this. That's what consecration is. Consecration is the word con that means with or to be aligned with thoroughly and the word sacred's in the middle. So consecrate, it means to be aligned with that which is sacred. It means to be fully in line with the divine will of God, essentially. That's what to consecrate means. And so God says, is there anything in your life that you've taken off the table and said, God, I'll give you all 90% of this stuff, but this 10% I'm keeping with me. It's gonna take that 10% for, for you to be free. See why I started talking about Gilgal earlier? Because I need you to know that the rolling away of the stone of reproach and shame and wound and pain is possible, is likely, is well within God's ability, but God can set you free from everything that has ever bound you and you can still walk in slavery unless you're willing to commit yourself to him in a way that says everything's on the table. There are no limits to my obedience. I'll love them if I have to. I'll serve that person that I hate. I won't watch, listen to, or go. You know, that, that's the old holiness line, so I didn't want to start there. Because then you just think, oh, let's think, no, no, this is a different message. It's not just, you know, drinking and chewing tobacco, smoking cigarettes. This is, are you willing to actually allow God access to your personality, to your identity, to your friends, to your circles and relationship, to your finances? Are you willing to say, God, it's all on the table? Because if you're not, then what Israel's found out is that you can be free from every enemy and still not be free from the villains inside of you, and so you will walk in slavery even after God has defeated everything in front of you. Hmm. Does your obedience have boundaries? There's the question. Because if it does, then those same boundaries are keeping God's freedom out of the center of who you are. The consecration of circumcision allowed the liberty the Lord had provided to become the freedom that the people experienced. Say that one more time. 
The consecration of these people allowed the liberty the Lord had provided to them to become the freedom that they actually experienced. Ephesians 1 says that every gift in the heavenly places has been given to you. You've been given access to everything through Jesus. The question is, will you allow your life to be shaped and molded in such a way that actually allows you the opportunity to reach in and take what God has provided? And can I just tell you, sadly, some of you are gonna walk out of this room with the same reproach and shame in your life because you don't wanna leave everything on the table. Because if this afternoon God calls you in your heart to text somebody, make a phone call, go visit somebody and say, listen, I've been wrong. For 25 years I've been wrong. And I don't wanna be bound anymore and so I'm giving you the freedom to be wrong if you are, but regardless, I'm just forgiving you. And I want you to forgive me too. Are you willing to? Or is that off the table? You can have Gilgal, but you gotta have the circumcision with it. You gotta have the consecration. Donna, so would you please come, or whoever's gonna play. I'm gonna tell you one story. I like the story, and I think it helps make sense of all this. It's a story that I read from 2018 about a kid named Leo Belknap, two years old. Two-year-old kids are, can be, tremendously mischievous because they're curious. Right? I've had two two-year-olds come through my house. They're different, but they're still kind of the same. And so his parents, Ben and Jackie Belknap, had been saving cash to pay Ben's parents back because his parents had fronted the money for season tickets to the University of Utah's football team. They were big Utes fans, they wanted to go to the games, and so Ben's parents had fronted them the cash so they could buy season tickets, and they had been taking cash, and they had stuck it in envelopes, and they said, we're gonna pay them back over time, and we're, we're looking forward to giving them this gift. They weren't really expecting it, the parents weren't doing it to get paid back, but Ben and Jackie wanted to just do it out of the kindness of their heart. Well, as Jackie was going to put some more cash into that envelope that had almost $1,100 in cash in it, she realized the envelope wasn't where she left it. And so she's looking around, she's like, where did we put it? Could it? So she walked around the house and she, she called to her husband. She said, Ben, have you seen the envelope with the money for your parents? And, and he said, no, I haven't seen it. Isn't it in the office where it was? And she said, I didn't see it in there. And so as they investigated the house, they found the money. See, a few days before, earlier that week, Jackie and little two-year-old Leo had been shredding junk mail. He had become something of an expert. And so he took the envelope with that cash that meant nothing to him, and he fed it bill by bill into that shredder. And they found thousands of strips of currency in the can underneath that shredder. They couldn't get angry at him. He didn't know. And so they, Jackie started to cry a little bit, but then she just started to laugh. So I don't know what else to do. 
And as they were telling some friends, this is where it was so fascinating to me. One of their friends told them about something that they had no idea existed. And until I read this article, I had no idea it existed either. There is in our government a division called the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. And it offers a solution for situations just like Ben, Jackie, and Leo were in. See, there's a division in the Bureau of Engraving and Printing called the Mutilated Currency Division, which is, by their own definition, devoted to redeeming, burned, rodent-chewed, or deteriorated money, and it's a free service to the public. It handles approximately 30,000 claims per year, and they redeem about $30 million in mutilated cash each year. Ben Belknap contacted the government and said, I need to talk to that agency right now. And so this is what I told him. They said, that's fine, we understand. It's happened before, you're not the first one. They probably got that written on the wall. This is what we have to tell everybody who calls. But they said, we want you to get all of the pieces and we want you to put it in Ziploc baggies, stuff them in as much as you can, then you're gonna put it in a thick parcel and you're going to send it to us here at the Mutilated Currency Division. And as they piece it back together to make sure it's not counterfeit and to make sure that it's not missing things, they will then send in crisp, newly printed money replacement bills for everything that was destroyed. I love that story. Would you stand with me? Here's why that story spoke to me so much. Listen, I was going to end the sermon differently. I, I, I wanted to go into the rest of that text, but, but God, God sort of landed me here. Because the power of that image of us taking every broken thing, every bit of that which was mutilated, putting it in those bags and saying, I'm giving you everything. Because I believe that if I give you everything, then I'll get everything in return that I thought I'd lost. And this morning, I want you to hear me. Can you imagine how frustrating it is to take $1,100 in cash and stuff it into Ziploc baggies thinking this was ours and we're just hoping that if we send it to the right place that it's gonna come back to us like it's supposed to be. There's some nerves there. How much more with the human soul? How much more with your identity? God is saying, I want you to take the things that hurt. I want you to put it all on the table. And if you'll say that it's all here for me, see, if you'll commit it all into my hands, 100% of your life, Every bit of obedience, every bit of submission, every bit of surrender, everything that you had ever held, whether broken or whole, if you'll give it to me, you can walk in freedom. Here's what I know. In this room, there's a percentage of you that were hurt by people when you were young. Unthinkable things were done. Evil, despicable, and demonic things were done to you. And what I know because of what I've read and who I've talked to, those things scar you. They can create trust issues. They can create relationship issues. They can cause you to doubt what God is able to do in your life. And, and, and so part of the hard work of that, can I just tell you, the consecrating work that the Spirit wants to do 
is to bring you to that place where you say, you can even have that. Some of you have been the accuser. Some of you have been the aggressor. Some of you have been the one that did the wounding. Some of you have just rebelled against God and you wonder why in the world he would want you at all. You might ask for forgiveness, but you don't know that it took because you don't feel a whole lot different. So you keep living life like you live life. And all along, there's this shame. You wake up and you think, yeah, it's going to be a good day, but I still, there's this nagging. It's just a nagging. Can I tell you, I just want you to hear me again. I'm going to pray. I'm not going to belabor this. I know it's late. But I just want you to know, even if you can't do it today, I just want you to hear from the scriptures and from my mouth. You can be free. You don't have to walk into the promises of God trying to drag the curse of your past. You don't. And I'm not saying it's easy work. But I know from a, for a fact and from experience what we read in that psalm earlier, the tears that we lay down in these moments will produce a harvest in the future. There is a harvest of peace and hope and purpose and rest. If we'll say everything's on the table, it's yours. I give it to you. So would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? I'm going to pray with you. So I'm Pentecostal enough to believe that there's another 10 minutes in this service. So I'm going to open up the altars because there are some of you who know that what I'm saying is weighing into your spirit. There are some of you who have walked with the reproach of your past, who have walked under the taunts and the shame of enemies that God defeated years ago. There's some of you who have been in that place for a long time, and I just want you to, again, there's freedom and there's liberty for you. But, but if you come down here, this is, this is you wrestling with God to say, if you want to be honest, I wish you would be honest. Sometimes I don't even know if we can anymore. But to say, God, I, I haven't given you everything, even though you gave me everything. And I don't even know how to give you this last 20%. So I, I, I'm not asking you to come down here with this pat answer that makes all the sense in the world. I'm not asking you to come down here and read a scripted prayer. I, I'm, I'm just telling you, maybe what you need right now is, is to pray, God, I don't even know how to give it to you. I don't even know how to surrender it over to you. God, I know that you've pricked my heart. I know that you have convicted me of some things. I don't even know how to give them up. For some of you, you're ready. You're ready to say, God, everything's on the table. I I'm ready to walk in a limitless obedience. And God be praised for that because I believe that there's freedom on the other side of that. I believe the first time that you actually obey him, when he's asked you to do something that you wouldn't have done before, I believe you're going to experience the falling of shackles off of your heart and off of your soul. You're going to know a freedom inside because no longer are you bound by the things that were internal. Suddenly, you have broken those chains by surrendering what was inside to God, not just what was outside. And, and I, I want you to hear that because, oh man, <laughs> in my mind, I can even see it. I can see some of you in your souls with a set of hands that have been bound up even though your destiny was purchased by Christ. Your heart has been uh, bound up by chains and shackles and fetters. And I want you to know, as soon as you say to God, 
yes, I will do that thing that I wouldn't have done yesterday, you will start to realize that those ropes aren't as tight. They're loosening up and those chains are starting to crack and break because there actually is freedom in obedience and there actually is liberty in surrender that he has given you this opportunity to not walk in the shame and the reproach and the wounds of where you've been, but to give you full access to the promises that he has made to you. And so I just turn this moment over to the Holy Spirit. Some of you want to come down, I'll, I'll pray with you. We have some intercessors who will come and pray with you. You guys know who you are. But if you want to do it there, it's fine. I'm going to pray over you and then I'm going to give you a minute. I challenge you to be brave enough. I challenge you to be brave enough. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for what you're doing and for what you're going to do. I thank you, Jesus, that you are not the God <laughs> who has ever left a captive in captivity. But the book of Ephesians, God, oh, thank you for that. It says that you took captivity captive. <laughs> you took the oppressors captive to set your people free. And then you gave gifts to your people. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, right now. There are people in this space who've been dealing with the haunting shame and accusations of their past, who've been dealing with unforgiveness and bitterness, who've been dealing with a, and God, with, with a resistance to obey you in whatever area you ask them to. And now I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, as we as we allow this sacred time to be what it's supposed to be. As people have started to come, Father, I thank you for that. I believe there are chains that are gonna start falling. I believe that there are ropes that are gonna start loosening. I believe that there are some tangles that are gonna be detangled by you and your power and your presence. And Jesus, I pray right now in your name, my Savior, that you give every bound person courage, that you let them glimpse and taste the actual liberty that you have purchased for them in Jesus' name. Let it be my Savior. Let it be my Savior. A boundaryless obedience, a limitless surrender, a consecration to you this morning. If you're coming, if you're hesitating, this is the time to come. If you're hesitating, you need to ask yourself why. This has nothing to do with me. This altar space has nothing to do with me. There are no numbers involved in altars. This is about you stepping into a place of freedom when you've been walking in another place of bondage. It's about you determining that I am not going to live in that place where the chains exist anymore. praying people come down and begin to just gather behind these. No need to shout at them. Just begin to create a space of intercession around them. Begin to create a space of freedom around them. Huh. Because there is life in this house right now. There is life here.